Welcome to the Fixing Healthcare podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Jeremy Kaur. I'm also host of the popular New Books and Medicine podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert was the CEO of the Permanente Group, the nation's largest physician group. He's currently a Forbes contributor, a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business, and author of the best-selling book, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong. His next book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients, will be publishing this spring and can be ordered from Amazon or Barnes & Noble now. Together, we also host the bi-weekly podcast, Coronavirus The Truth. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the sixth episode of season five. This season is focused on the culture of medicine and how it both supports doctors and nurses in providing superb medical care in the most difficult of circumstances, such as during the current coronavirus pandemic, but how it also leads them to inflict harm on themselves and their patients. If you want more information on the culture of healthcare, you can find links to articles and other podcasts on the subject on my website, robertpearlmd.com. Our guest today is Dr. Jen Gunter. Dr. Gunter is an obstetrician gynecologist specializing in chronic pain. She's also a New York Times columnist covering women's health and the author of two books, The Preemie Primer, A Complete Guide for Parents of Premature Babies, and The Vagina Bible. Jen, this season of Fixing Healthcare is about the culture of medicine. You are an expert on this subject, particularly when it comes to a broad range of women's issues. I can't wait to hear your insights into the impact of culture and how women get medical care, provide medical care, and are treated in the healthcare system. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much for having me. Let's begin with your decision to become an obstetrician gynecologist specializing in pain management. How'd you make that choice? Well, I I do a lot of things out of I guess, righteous indignation. (laughs) That's my big motivator. So when I was a medical student, um, I'd always been very, uh, when I was in high school was when there was a lot of discussions in Canada about uh, overturning the abortion uh, law, which at the time had required uh, three physicians to sign for someone to get an abortion. And it was done in a very, you know, you had to basically write a letter. You didn't even get to present your own case. It was just awful. And so I was very active in being involved with that even um, in high school. And so when I was in medical school and I was, you know, I got it when I was 20, so I was still pretty young. uh, And there was still a lot going on about that. And I just thought, you know, I really need to go into women's health because these conversations, you know, it's ridiculous that, you know, a decision about your body is made by somebody else and you don't even get to advocate for yourself in person. So I think that was my driving force for going into OBGYN. Your first book you wrote was The Preemie Primer. What's it about? What's it about and why did you write it? Well, uh, so there's an old adage that 
the most complicated pregnancies happen to OBGYNs. And uh, I, you know, I always like to represent, so that was me. And so I had a, you know, a triplet pregnancy that was incredibly complicated. And I delivered my first, you know, I ruptured my membranes at 22 and a half weeks. I delivered my first son who passed away. And then I managed to stay pregnant with the other two for three and a half weeks more and have an interval delivery at 26 weeks. And so, you know, my boys were 783 grams and 843 grams. And then on top of it, the smallest one had a complex cardiac defect and he needed um, his pulmonary valve to be ballooned, but he was too small for any of the equipment uh, and also had an ASD and other issues. And finally, all that was done. And, you know, they were on oxygen for a year and my other son had cerebral palsy and they were just, you know, he's dealing with oxygen and physical therapy and occupational therapy and gastroenterologists and cardiologists. And, and it was so overwhelming. And I thought, if this is hard for me, how does everyone else manage? And then when I went online to try to get good information, you know, I was, it was really hard to sort good from bad. And so that's why I decided, I thought, you know, people need a textbook. And so that's why I wrote the Premium Primer. I'm sure quite a number of women have written to you to thank you for the information you provided when they faced those same types of choices that you had to overcome. Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of parents really appreciated hearing from a doctor because you know that, you know, you see, you notice the little things that maybe aren't right or the little things that are, are really good and, and people maybe miss. And so, you know, having that, you know, behind the scenes take sort of like a docent, if you will, I think people find very helpful. And, you know, when I started, you know, I got into all of this helping people with health misinformation because of my own experiences. Then I started to think, well, what if, you know, what's happening to my own patients and women's health? And so I decided to pivot from prematurity to women's health for my online writing. I hope your kids are all doing pretty well right now. And it's just a distant memory of those first couple of months and years. Well, they're, yes, I mean, they're, you know, they're uh, 17 and a half. They're doing, you know, very well. Uh, we're very fortunate and privileged that we had the kind of medical care we have. There's still, you know, cardiac issues and other things, but in the grand scheme of things, we're, you know, we're very lucky and uh, we're, you know, dealing with homeschooling and all the COVID issues like everybody else. That's wonderful to hear. Jen, there are obvious differences in the issues that men and women face in getting medical care. What are your thoughts about how the culture of medicine impacts women differently than men when they come for medical treatment? Well, I think, you know, obviously it's always a little bit hard for me to answer that because I've never cared for men, you know, as a physician, right? I mean, medical school. So it's, it's hard for me to compare and contrast, but I would say that I really do feel that women are not listened to in the way that men are, or they have a harder time navigating the system because of that. That it just seems that many times they're, you know, they're told their pain isn't that serious, or they're told it's not that bad, or they're told their bleeding isn't that heavy. I mean, even just, you know, today I, I wrote a post, you know, for my Substack about, you know, and I included a throwaway line about the definition of, you know, heavy periods. And one, you know, one, one question that we ask in the office is, a, you know, are you soaking your clothes? That's a, a pretty good screening question. And it's, it's a nice question because everybody understands what you mean when you say that. 
And, you know, within an hour of that coming up, I had a woman reply to me on Twitter going, why can't I get any doctor to believe me that I'm soaking my clothes and this is a, a medical problem? And I just, I, I don't understand that disconnect. I'm trying to help figure that out. But I, I believe, you know, a lot of it is just part of the general ways that society dismisses the concerns of, you know, related to the, you know, the reproductive tract. In your sub-subspecialty of pain management, I would imagine that this is particularly a problem when it comes to women and pain, with men being far less empathetic for the degree of difficulty, the degree of intensity that they experience compared to some of the other injuries that men might get. Is this your belief as well? I think in general, chronic pain is actually taught very poorly in medicine. And I mean, part of it is it's very complex and it's very difficult to understand. And, you know, there's a big overlap with, with a lot of other factors with, with chronic pain. And so I think that, uh, that in general, there seems to me to be more dismissal for women who have chronic pain versus men. Although again, I don't practice in the field of chronic pain for men. So, you know, I, I don't truly, truly know the answer to that, but certainly, uh, one of the big issues for me with chronic pain is that medicine is set up to look after people with acute health problems, right? So you break a bone, you go in, you get the emergency department's like broken bone, we can fix that. You know, they either do it or they call ortho, you get your x-ray, it's done. And then you're given this period of healing and that's, that's it. But things that aren't acute, things that may require, you know, visit after visit or that are not going to get cured, but maybe you can make them better. Uh, those things we don't teach very well. And so not only we don't teach them, but our system's not designed for it. People call and they want to be seen, but instead of getting in with the person who saw them last, maybe they get shunted into somebody else's schedule. And then you've lost that chain of follow-up and having continuity of care with pain is really important. And you can't have many captains for that ship. You can really only have one. And I just, I don't think our system's really well designed for that. Part of why I wrote the book Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients was about this type of issue where I think when physicians can't cure a problem and chronic pain is one of those problems, obviously, you know, you're, you're an expert in it, that often we can't cure, all we can do is help manage. Doctors don't like it. They wanna shy away from it. They wanna avoid it. And I think that the patient gets the short end of the problem or the continued intense aspect of the problem because in the physician culture, if we can't cure it, we don't wanna face it. And in some ways what we do is minimize it. Is this your experience? Oh, I definitely think that's part of it. I mean, I think that that may be also an American part of it. I think maybe other cultures are more accepting of shades of gray of improvement versus absolute yes or no from a cure standpoint. I think when, when people can't cure things, they have a hard time maybe explaining that to people because they view it as a failure or I'm not sure, but I actually find that most people respect those conversations. And, uh, you know, when you explain that, look, I always tell everybody when I see someone with chronic pain, you know, and they, they'll say, well, I, you're going to cure me, right, doc, you're gonna make this better. And I say, you know, we have to stop. I'm going to be really honest with you. My first step is to make it so you're 20% better. And let's focus on that. The first step is 20%. 
And, you know, people are sometimes, you know, shocked. And then I'll say, but, you know, wouldn't you be better if, if you're, you had 20% less pain, your quality of life would be better. Right. And then they're like, well, yeah, yeah, it would be. Okay. So we're going to focus on small steps because small steps also add up. Right. And I think sometimes when a problem is really big and pain is really big, I mean, if it's affecting your life, you can't do what you want to do. People want, they come in and, and, and they're worked up and they deserve to be worked up. Their pain has, their pain has maybe damaged their lives, damaged their relationships, and it's difficult to have pain. It hurts. And you want that to go away immediately. And so I think what happens is when all that distress comes in, physicians don't know how to respond. They don't know how to sit and listen to the distress and then say, okay, well, let's develop a plan. What happens is, okay, well, let's just do big things. And so that's, I think, how a lot of people end up with surgeries they don't need because people think they have to respond to a big thing with what looks like a big flashy medical thing. But you know what? Listening to someone is a big thing. Uh, doing cognitive behavioral therapy is a big thing. Medication is a big thing. These are all big things. It's just perspective. As you're talking about the challenges patients have in being heard. I'm thinking back to an episode we had in terms of fixing healthcare with Amanda Calhoun about racism in medicine. What's your view about why women have, where black women have three times the mortality of white women? Well, I think that, you know, racism is a huge problem in, you know, in medicine. I recently, you know, for um, my new book that's coming out on the menopause manifesto, if you just look at rates of oophorectomy, so taking ovaries out at the time of hysterectomy, and, and we know that that shouldn't happen for, you know, women who are premenopausal, that ovaries should be left in a, you know, serious cancer concerns aside, that the rate of having ovaries removed is much higher for black women than it is for um, white women or Hispanic women. And, you know, that that can really only be explained, you know, with with racism, either people having less, less access to quality care, uh, people um, having their concerns not heard, people thinking that, you know, you, you don't deserve quality care. Uh, and so I think that, you know, there are some serious issues and we have to confront it. I, I don't practice obstetrics anymore. So it's always um, hard for me to sort of have an in-depth discussion about obstetrical care, but I can only imagine that all of the concerns are the same. You know, one example I give with obstetrical care is, you know, after I delivered, I had sepsis you know, cause I had an infection. That's what led to my cesarean section. And I was a setup for sepsis, obviously. And I was on two different antibiotics afterwards and I was deteriorating and nobody was listening to me. I was having, you know, my oxygen levels were dropping. My pH level was changing. You know, I actually went back years later and looked at my lab results and I was like, oh my God, that's really bad. And nobody was listening to me. And I spent a day and a half basically dying in my hospital bed. Uh, and it wasn't until I basically started screaming and got hysterical and, and yelled at the attending that I got the care I needed. Now, imagine if I wasn't a physician. Imagine, you know, I was being victimized by racism. I would have died. You can see that. You can start to see how not listening to people kills people, how hard it is for people to advocate. And so I, I think we have to really have a good look at the house of medicine. Beautifully stated, Jen. Let me ask you another question. How does the culture of medicine impact women physicians differently than male physicians? 
I trained in the, you know, the eighties and the early nineties and you had to be just like the guys and you had to be as tough. And, um, you know, certainly where I trained, there was, there was very little room for someone in a surgical specialty to not act like the guys. And when I say the guys, I mean, a stereo, you know, a stereotypical version of a male surgeon, which I think that also hurts men too, because a lot of guys aren't like that, but they were forced to act that way as well. You just had to be tough. You had to suck it up. And I think that having only one type of person in a field is terrible, right? We are all diverse. We have different unique experiences and things that make us amazing. And, and our patients are like that too. So don't we want our special, our specialties to reflect that the diversity of experiences. And so, yeah, I think the um, suck it up culture is not a good culture. And I'm pleased to see that there've been so many changes and I was in medicine 20 years before I had a, before there was a woman who's the chair of my department. So I think that says something. You've battled, I'll call it other cultures, social media cultures, advertising cultures, particularly after your second book, The Vagina Bible came out. Can you tell listeners about some of these battles? Sure. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I think that's my superpower is I'm like fearless. I'm just like, ah, charge in and not think about the consequences, but that's okay. I mean, you need to advocate. I just, I get so enraged. Like I said at the beginning, I have this righteous indignation when things aren't, when things are unequal. So yeah, I mean, I've, I've taken on certainly politicians. I've taken on the wellness industrial complex, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow and Goop, uh, most recently Vagisil and their awful campaign to make teens embarrassed about their normal body smells and function. And I certainly get a lot of blowback. I get people who attack you or attack me. And, um, you know, the funniest thing or the most interesting observation about it is the most aggressive and nasty, I would say comebacks come from the wellness community. You know, and I write a lot about abortion and I certainly do get trolled by, you know, forced birthers. And, you know, I do have an FBI agent that I, you know, have to send stuff to now and then. But yeah, the wellness community, they get the most worked up. And I find that really fascinating. And I think it's because, you know, one, I'm cutting into the, you know, the bottom dollar, explaining why, you know, why homeopathy is never going to help you obviously affects people who sell homeopathy or their practices are built around it. But also I think for many people, wellness is almost like a religion. And there's all these overlapping sort of spirituality terms. And you know, I think that it's just important if people are going to take a supplement that if they're taking it for their religion versus taking it for a health benefit, they should be aware that there's a difference. How did some of these battles like the ones you had over the goop products end up? Well, I won. <laughs> Um, yeah, don't ever, ever bet against me. <laughs> I'm very tenacious. The attorney general, I think it was of California, you know, on behalf of the FDA sued Goop and they, they, I mean, they had to pay what would be, a, I think, a paltry sum for them, $145,000 for the false advertising. But, you know, I think that people say, oh, well, you know, you're just doing that for attention. And I'm like, no, well, first of all, you don't understand me if you think that, but, you know, a site like Goop is particularly dangerous because it mixes good quality information. I mean, they have some good information with absolute harmful trash. So for example, 
they sell a coffee enema kit. Uh, they promote drinking raw milk. You know, they have people who write content for them who are anti-vaxxers, right? And so we know that it just takes one exposure to a medical conspiracy theory for people to start thinking that maybe that's something they should worry about. Conspiracy theories are very sticky that way. And so, you know, when I'm battling a site like that, it's because either their products are super harmful, uh, like Vagisil or like coffee enemas, or it's because that site actually really, there's a real malignancy there that people need to see. You know, having someone write content about, are you keto curious? And you read their recipes and you think, oh, well, those recipes look okay. Who is this doctor? And let me click on their website. And you click and you go to their website and all of a sudden you also see that they're promoting echinacea to treat chlamydia, or they're saying vaccines are dangerous, or they're saying that you probably have heavy metal poisoning and maybe you should get hair analysis, which is garbage for, you know, for that. So there's a real portal to harm in many of these sites. My understanding is that when you wrote your second book, that you had difficulty getting it advertised because it included the word vagina. Is this true? And if so, again, how was that battle resolved? One of the reasons I wrote it and, and has the title was, you know, people treat the vagina and vulva and the lower reproductive tract as if it's shameful. I'm like, well, the vagina is no different than the elbow. It's just a body part, get over it. And, you know, being able to say the word really matters because when you can't say a word, you know, when you use, use euphemisms like down there or lady parts or whatever, you're, you're basically implication is it's shameful. So when it came time to promote the book, the, my publisher Kensington wanted to, uh, you know, do promoted ads on Twitter and on Facebook and they were turned down when it had the word vagina in it, when they reworded the ad and put it out without the word vagina, it was accepted. And of course that was on the day of publication. And I was like, what? So I took to Twitter and started tweeting about it. And it got picked up by a lot of different places. And, you know, Twitter of course said that wasn't the case, but you know, they kept having ads rejected even after that. So, you know, there was a big, you know, the big issue with it. And, you know, my understanding too is also a lot of the morning shows saying the word vagina and vulva is a challenge because I guess, I don't know, they don't want kids who are eating breakfast with their families who might be watching it to hear the word. I mean, that's problematic. There's nothing wrong with saying the word vagina and vulva. You know, my, my 17 year old boys have grown up with, you know, I have boxes of speculums and teaching tools and stuff all around the house. And when I was writing the vagina Bible, there were papers everywhere that I was reading with the word, you know, vagina everywhere. They rolled their eyes and like, oh my God, people get over it. Uh, Jen, there was a distressing study in the New England Journal of Medicine about the challenges that women face from sexism and overt harassment as medical students and residents. Can you provide insights for our listeners who are not in the medical field about the problem and what you believe can be done about it? Oh, yeah. I mean, certainly I would say it was more overt when I was in my training in the 80s and 90s. The culture, I think, has maybe made it less overt. Obviously, as I'm now in a different position, you know, when you're a trainee, you're far more vulnerable. Yeah, it's still there. Uh, I think that there's a different standard if you're off because your kids are sick. I would imagine that falls more often, you know, in a heterosexual coupleship on the woman in the relationship. Hopefully that's changing. But, 
you know, just even looking with the reports that have come out with the pandemic, how, you know, how having to work from home has disproportionately affected mothers, right, over fathers. And how to solve it, I, I wish, I guess if I had that answer, I'd be solving it. Um, I think diversity is the answer. I think calling it out is the answer. I think that it's really important for administration at the top to be intolerant of it. 12 years ago, I was in a position where I was complaining, maybe it was a bit longer than that, where I was complaining about something that was happening in a clinic. And you know, the answer was that I was getting too worked up and you know, maybe I needed mental health care because I couldn't handle it. And when a male colleague brought up the same issue, you know, he was insightful. So those things are, I think they're still happening. I think I'm very fortunate right now. I'm in a situation where I work that that's, you know, I don't feel that that's happening. Although again, you know, now that I'm 30 years into medicine, I'm, I'm probably less likely to be exposed to those things. And so I, maybe if you asked a trainee, they would have a very different answer. And so I think that's why it's important to have these conversations and to call it out wherever you see it and to try to figure out how to fix it. But I, I don't think I quite have those answers. Yeah, in listening to you, the question that comes to my mind is, do you ever get embarrassed or afraid? I don't think I've ever been embarrassed <laughs> in my life. I don't know if I'm, I, I don't know if I'm able to be embarrassed. I just think it's just me. Afraid, sure. Oh gosh, I get scared of things all the time. I mean, when COVID hit and the first wave, I was terrified. And, you know, when my kids are sick, I'm terrified. Oh, I'm also afraid to go under my house. <laughs> I have an awful crawl space and I'm convinced there's vampires under there. I'm convinced it's so dark and dank. And if I was a vampire, that's where I would live. So I don't actually like the dark. Let me ask you, how have your OBGYN colleagues in the various national societies to which you belong reacted to your educational efforts through social media? I would think that for some of them would feel a bit edgy uh, and maybe even inappropriate. Yeah, certainly when I first started on Twitter, uh, people were, I, a lot of sort of, I guess, senior people in different organizations or seniors, states people in medicine, you know, saying that I was inappropriate. And I was like, well, wait a minute, you know what? I'm a senior states person too, and I don't think I am. And, you know, the definition of what's appropriate in medicine at the time, and it was decided by people who don't look anything like me. And I'm sorry, I don't accept that. You know, what I consider unacceptable is snake oil. What I consider unacceptable is selling supplements that don't help people. What I consider unacceptable is lying to people about healthcare, you know, racism, misogyny. Those are the things that are unacceptable. If I happen to drop an F-bomb and you're telling me that's unacceptable, like, I'm sorry, like sit in the back of class and take a lesson because it's not. So I, I did get a lot of that, but it's come around and now people think differently, I think, or maybe not, maybe there's people who still dislike me and that's fine, they're, I don't care. Apparently I also affect when I talk at different conventions, it also affects sometimes whether there's drug company funding, apparently. You're a very prolific writer. You write for the New York Times, you write quite a bit in social media. What are some of the topics you've written about that have generated the greatest interest? Well, I would say, there's a few, certainly, uh, you know, when I wrote about, you know, when my son died and what that was like and uh, going through all that, that trauma, that's resonated with a lot of people. 
certainly writing about you know, just vaginal health. I wrote a piece for the Times a few years ago called My Vagina is Terrific and Your Opinion About It Is Not. That got a lot of attention. I love that piece. It's probably my favorite piece of writing. Uh, I wrote a piece about uh, why I don't have an issue with sex-selective abortion. And a lot of people told me that that completely changed their minds on the subject. They had not thought about it the way that I had presented it. That piece, it's an old piece from my blog I wrote many years ago, and it still recirculates now and then. And, you know, people just like, wow, I never thought about it that way. And uh, writing about the jade eggs, that's the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> I know that if I don't ask you this question, I'm going to get uh, dozens of uh, emails from listeners can you explain to listeners what the jade egg is and what the battle was and maybe even touch on some of the 5,000-year-old research you did to disprove it? Uh, yeah. So, um, you know, people send me stuff to write about all the time and direct messages and tag me. And obviously I can't write about every one of them, but someone tagged me in this like jade egg practice thing on the Goop website. And I was like, what? is that and of course it's a total you know just <laughs> sort of cultural appropriation lie bad medicine like every single bad thing that you could think of you know wrapped into one and this idea that you're going to use a an egg-shaped object supposedly made of jade although apparently most things sold as jade in the u.s aren't even jade so and put it in your vagina and harness your womanhood to improve you know, name any medical condition that you want to name. And of course it was a absolute garbage. And, you know, this idea that you're going to put a rock in your vagina and, you know, get, <laughs> you make anything better is just ridiculous. But the way that it was described how to use was biomechanically incorrect. And obviously there's a concern about how you would clean, you know, a porous stone that could be affected by acid, vaginas acidic, obviously. So, you know, I wrote about that and it went viral and uh, it, I mean, it went crazy viral. And so then um, that post, you know, I just sort of detailed all, all of the sort of, the, you know, the misogyny, the issue, just like it was sort of a litany of, of problems. Like you, it touched on basically every single thing that you could be offensive about, I think pretty much. And um, I guess, you know, later on Goop responded and they, they wrote a nasty thing about me on their, <laughs> on their page. And I think most people would be like, oh my God, a celebrity wrote something mean about me. And they had these two sort of quasi celebrity doctors, you know, one of course who has a line of supplements, write nasty things about me and tone police me. And I just thought it was hilarious because I was like, wait a minute, you all sat around your ionic water cooler and this is the best you came up with. <laughs> so, so then I wrote a reply and that went viral. And then I was like, you know what? I'm gonna like dot this I. And so I partnered with Sarah Parsik, who is an archeologist. And um, we reviewed the holdings, uh, the artifact holdings of the three largest uh, sort of Chinese artifact collections in the US because uh, it's all online. And we didn't find any evidence that jade eggs were used in in China at all uh, because you know they were sold as like an ancient secret. Children going through puberty have a lot of questions both boys and girls. I think that at that age it's pretty common for people to feel guilty about 
you know, their bodies and how they're changing, especially as they start to understand their own sexuality. Some feel bad for developing faster or slower than their peers or feel guilty about, you know, new feelings they may be experiencing. What do you think can and should be done to help combat this stigma and help make puberty more comfortable for young people? Oh, I think it gets, it all gets down to education. Knowledge is power. And I think that, first of all, if you don't talk about what happens to bodies and changing, then you're, the act of not having the conversation implies that it's shameful, right? Just like not being able to say the word vagina implies that it's shameful. So, you know, talking about it, saying this is what happens, this is normal. You know, there, here's a great sex educator who's got a great website, why don't you go here? Or uh, here's, a, here's a fantastic um, video series, I want you to look at this here. And just talking about it and acknowledging it is super important. And I think we have to understand that so many teens get very little information about what happens to their body. I think that certainly, you know, when I was in, in the late seventies and early eighties, you know, when I was going through puberty, there was not anything was discussed, but I had Judy Bloom. And I, so many people my age say the same thing. Oh my gosh, thank God for Judy Bloom that we had her. Now there's so many more places. So I think, I think cultures of silence are harmful. And so that would be what I would change. What's the best piece of advice you can offer women listeners? Oh, well, I think, I think broadly and generally, if it feels right to you, it's probably right. So you know, everything that all the outside influences that conspire to tell you that you're wrong, or you shouldn't be thinking that way, or you shouldn't be acting that way, or you shouldn't be writing about that. You know, that's an end product of four or 5,000 years of, you know, patriarchal society. So, you know, if it feels right to you, then, then, it, then you need to listen to your inner voice, definitely. I think that's probably the biggest, the biggest take home I have. I think if, if you're talking about, you know, women in medicine, uh, then I think one advice I would have is go for the leadership positions, go for them. You know, I certainly, you know, I'm controversial and I've always spoken my mind. So, you know, I'm never someone who's going to be the chair of a department. The people who, who run things are the people who are able to bring everybody to the table. And I'm the person standing with the mega, megaphone talking about how horrible something is. And I'm, I'm gathering the troops, but, you know, I, I'm not the person who's able to maybe build those bridges as well. We all have to kind of grow where we're planted, I think. I, I think another message I would have for women in general is get into politics. Think about going into politics. Think about it, going into politics early. You know, the uh, whenever I when I was on tours for the Vagina Bible, and people would ask me, you know, what they can do, and I'd get these 18, 19 year old girls standing up, sometimes 13 or 14 year olds asking me questions that have been brought with their mom, and they say, well, what can they do? I'd be like, think about a career in politics because that's how you can really affect change. And I, it's really interesting. You know, you don't ever think about that. I, I, I think a lot of people don't, I shouldn't say don't ever, maybe there are some people who do, but, but why not? Why not, you know, we have a lot of great minds going into medicine, a lot of great minds going into research, but we also need great minds going into politics. How about the advice you can offer to men in their interactions with women? Well, I think treat everybody equal. If somebody is raising a concern, listen. 
Um, think about, try to make sure that you are, that you're trying to give your opportunities out to everybody. And if, you know, on your, your next panel, it looks like you only have, you have eight out of eight men, you need to do everything possible to try to correct that. And to think about there's many, you know, young people coming up who could really use that leg up. Like, I don't need to be on another panel. I, you know, I mean, I, I appreciate that often I'm a draw and that brings people in, but I don't need to ever be on another panel career-wise. And so I'm happy to, to give those positions up to other people if, it, if I can. So I would think that that's something that, you know, all of us who have, you know, senior positions or in positions of advantage should be thinking about. Jen, you grew up in Canada and went to medical school and did your residency there. And then you came to the United States for your fellowship training. How would you compare the two cultures of medicine? Well, obviously I'm comparing the culture of medicine in Canada to what it was like in the eighties and nineties. And so it may not be quite the same, but I, I mean, I think it hasn't changed that much. I would say that, you know, in Canada, people understand maybe that they have to wait and they understand that the health system is doing its best. They might not be happy with some of the things and they definitely think that things should change. But I think there's such a pressure here in the States to, I guess, fix everything up front. I think there's less acceptance of the chronic aspect of things. I had a lot of difficulties actually when I first moved here trying to, the cultures are actually so much more different than you think. And now I've been here for over 25 years. So I'm, my appreciation of the differences has probably changed a bit. But when I first moved here and I was, I, I just sort of, I didn't understand a lot of the urgency, you know, with things like, like I have to get in for my pap smear today. And in Canada, you're like, well, oh my gosh, I got my appointment for my pap smear. It's in four months. I'm lucky. And, and obviously, you know, waiting four months is a lot, but you also have to understand that, you know, if you have a bleeding concern and you can get in for that in a day, that's what matters. Although maybe that isn't happening right now. And uh, a friend of mine who is a, a maternal fetal medicine expert said to me, oh, you don't understand in America, instant gratification isn't soon enough. Because <laughs> I just, I was, you know, I was just like Canadian from like the Midwest in Canada. And it's, you know, the Midwest in Canada is very different from the Midwest in the States. It was just a different sort of way of thinking. And I'm not saying one is right or one is wrong. They're just different. The culture in Canada is, is just, hmm. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not quite sure I'm able to put it into words, but I think that people are very appreciative that they don't have bills, that they don't have $100,000 bills that, you know, something's going to happen and they're going to go medically bankrupt. They appreciate that there are problems. They appreciate that, for example, like in some provinces, uh, physical therapy is not a covered benefit. And, you know, that's backwards, right? Imagine that, you know, you can get an MRI covered, you can get back surgery covered, but you can't get physical therapy covered. The thing that might prevent you from have ever needing to see a back surgeon in the first place, right? So, you know, so that's backwards. And I think that in both America and Canada that we overemphasize procedures and we overemphasize imaging as opposed to just talking to people and hands-on therapy and things like physical therapy. And maybe that gets back to that whole, you know, initial conversation we had earlier about acute versus chronic and how the system is designed the pyramid or the triangle is upside down. If you could wave a magic wand and change one thing about the American healthcare system, what would it be? Oh, I, I would change that 
the idea that how much money you have affects the quality of care, you know, that everybody could have access to the same, the same healthcare and they wouldn't go bankrupt from needing their, from getting their healthcare. I mean, yeah, I mean, my kids were both, I mean, it was a long time ago, but you know, their bills were, I don't know, $700,000 each from the intensive care unit, maybe. Um, but because, you know, I had quality insurance and because they got uh, Medicaid at birth due to their birth weight, um, there was, you know, no bill coming home from the intensive care unit. But imagine someone who their, their baby doesn't qualify birth weight wise and they have bad insurance and they, they're just, you, you're starting your life with a $700,000 bill. Like that's not right. How about one thing you changed about the physician culture? I would change the, I still think medicine suffers from a patriarchal structure. I really do. And, and I think that this, this sort of culture of punishment of suffering to sort of get to the top like that, that has to change. 20 years from now, what do you believe women's health, women's medicine will be like? I don't know if I have an answer. I would love to think it's some kind of Star Trek like future where everybody's everybody is equal and everybody has access to care and nobody's getting bankrupt. And certainly that maternal mortality has plummeted. I, you know, I would like to think that uh, we're able to, I guess if I could fix one thing to make it better in 20 years, I would like to think that if we could make maternal mortality on par with, you know, other countries, that would be what we could have the same maternal mortality as Canada, Japan, Norway, England, France, I think that's what we really need to work for because our the the maternal mortality in the United States is just absolutely unacceptable. For our listeners, not only is it the worst amongst the industrialized nations, but it's the only country in which it's been rising over the past decade. Yeah, it's um, it's really an atrocity, and there I think there's so many things that are wrong. But I think that you know if you just get to back to the core, you know believing people when they have symptoms. If someone says they're short of breath two days after they had a delivery, that's an emergency. That's not like, oh, you're just anxious about your new baby. If you know someone says they have a fever, they need to be seen if they have a headache. I mean, you know, when you see these tragic cases that play out in the news media, right? And you read as an obstetrician, even though again, I'm not active in OB anymore, but these aren't weird things that anybody could have missed. You're, you're reading through and you're like, why weren't, why weren't they calling a code here? Why, why wasn't everybody getting worked up here? What, like you're reading it and you don't understand how, how this could have happened. And, you know, for many of these cases, clearly racism is playing a role when you're, when you're reading, like, how could you disbelieve this person? I don't understand that. And uh, that's something that we all have to recognize and, and fight to fix. Excellent, Jen. Is there anything else you want to add to the interview you'd like us to put on the air so that listeners can become more informed? Oh, um, sure. Well, uh, my new book is coming out as the Menopause Manifesto. And so anybody who is, uh, you know, wants to learn anything about menopause or people who are getting there or are there, I think they'll find there's a wealth of information in there, not just about the medicine, but about the history and how we've treated uh, women in menopause. Uh, I would encourage people to find me on Substack where I have, uh, you know, that's where I have my new blog. And 
yeah, I think that's, those are the places where we, and people can always find me on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks, Jen, for being on the show today and for educating the audience on the culture of medicine. You provided a wealth of information for listeners to consider. Robbie, what do you think about what Jen said? Jeremy, I loved her openness and honesty. In Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients, I talk about how when two patients came to the ED in the early period of the coronavirus, and there was a shortage of testing kits, that the white patient was twice as likely to be tested than the black person, even though they had identical symptoms. Her data on ovary removal is another example of the racism black patients face. These are examples of things that are fully under the control of the physician rather than imposed upon doctors by an insurance company or hospital administrator. And yet the actions they take can harm both patients and themselves. I also found her comments on how hard it is for most people to be heard when they go to the doctor's office and the need for more women to pursue leadership roles, extremely important for listeners, particularly those in healthcare. Please subscribe to Fixing Healthcare on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast software. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. Visit our website at fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Fixing HC Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and we'll tell your friends and colleagues about it. If you want more information on these topics, you can visit my website, robertpearlmd.com. Together, we can make American healthcare once again the best in the world. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Core. Have a great day.